I'd like you to imagine this morning that you are enjoying a leisurely walk on a warm summer evening, and you come upon a raging house fire. You stop to watch the terrible scene unfolding before your eyes, feeling the intense heat of the blaze on your unprotected face and arms. You have to kind of stand back. And just then a firefighter rushes past your shoulder, running toward that blaze, put a hose on it and try to bring it down. No matter how much you may want to help him, you cannot. You do not have the protective fire-resistant suit and equipment with which he is fitted. You're not equipped. Let's change the scene a little bit. You're on a chartered fishing boat off the New England coast. It's a chilly but glorious spring day, and you're bundled up against the chill as the boat cruises along the ocean's surface. As the boat stops, there's a couple of deep-sea divers that have kind of hitched a ride on your boat. It stops out seven miles from land, it's very deep, and these two divers fall off the edge of the boat into the waters, plunge down for an hour-long adventure under the sea. You peer over the side of the boat and you, you watch as they descend out of sight and you really, really wish you could go with them. But there you are, bundled in your coat, completely unequipped. You cannot follow them without oxygen tank, without a wetsuit to keep you warm. You're just not properly geared. Now, sometimes it's not proper gear, but it's even our bodies themselves which are unfit to participate with others in an activity. Let's consider a 14-year-old girl. She's crowned princess of the corn festival in her small rural town. And winning that great event is something for which she's very proud, but she's not particularly attractive or talented, just not so unattractive as some of the other girls. And she kind of has a way with a a, uh, fiddle, and she's worked it out a little bit, and she can squeak her way through something, and she wins. She's the princess of the corn festival. But having won that event, she gets to go to the Miss America contest. And she sits there and watches from the audience. We ask this question, can she compete in it? She can watch it, but she certainly cannot compete in this contest. She would need a whole new body and a whole new talent to even stand there and compete in any way, shape, or form. Or take a young boy, he's the fastest sprinter on his junior high track team. He's thrilled to learn that the Summer Olympics are scheduled to be held in his hometown. He's able to get a ticket and he sits there and watches the 100 meter race. It's the final, the fastest men on earth. And there he is in all of his glory watching. But if we took that young boy and put him down on the track and said, now we want you to win this race fairly. Could it happen? It doesn't matter how much training this boy has had. It doesn't matter how much he wants to win that race. His body would never keep up with those men. No amount of desire, no amount of training, he couldn't compete at their level. I'd like us to take these various scenes. I'm going somewhere with this, but hang on. Take these various scenes and multiply these over many, many times and we maybe get a little bit of a glimpse of what the disciples must have felt like when they saw Jesus Christ in his resurrected body. There were many people who knew Jesus and loved him. 
They watched him die. They mourned him dead. Then a few days later, those same people saw this same Jesus alive. But he was changed. His body had not merely been resuscitated, it had been fundamentally changed. And we see evidences of that in Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. The familiar story of two that were walking away, dejected at the fact that Jesus had died. Luke 24, 13, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now there's a long discussion. Jesus takes them through all of the Old Testament as they're walking on the road, and he explains to them how the Messiah was prophesied to die. It was necessary that he would die. And their hearts are burning within them as they consider these truths that they'd never thought of before. At verse 30, we pick up there, when he was at table with them, they'd come to a house, he sat down to eat. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning with us while we talked while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Now I take that to mean he didn't knock on the door and they let him in, but he stood in their presence. They were frightened. He said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me. Notice that. Touch me. He has a physical body. He says, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He has a body. His resurrection body, however, is uniquely fitted for life in a different dimension. The ultimate proof of that comes at the end of this chapter, verse 50. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. As other eyewitnesses write, he was taken up into the clouds. Put yourself there at that scene. The disciples could no more follow Jesus into heaven than we could live unaided on the bottom of the sea. Or a junior high boy could win an Olympic race. Unless their own bodies underwent a similar change. And that is why we're here today. This is the bold and courageous teaching of the Christian faith. Those who are spiritually reborn into a living relationship with Jesus Christ will someday receive a resurrection body like His, and we will be fitted for the eternal dimension. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
as we pick up our journey through this chapter. We've come to the 50th verse, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. And here the Apostle Paul declares, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For the the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Now some have not been with us through this series. Let me trace for you what Paul has laid out to this point, just very briefly. At verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 50, Paul says, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's dealing with a church where there was some influence and the idea was being promoted that Christ had not, in fact, that there would not, in fact, be a resurrection of the dead, that we would not follow in Christ's train. The problem with this idea, we go all the way back to the first verses of the chapter, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I uh, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, what word? What word was preached that saved them, that gave them new life and brought them into right relationship with God? What was that word? That word is Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead, verses 3 through 8. This message was the source of their salvation. Now we have a little problem here, says Paul. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and more likely in their thinking, you don't believe that you will rise from the dead, we have a real problem. Let's start at verse 13, pick up there. If there is no resurrection of the dead, he says, then not even Christ has been raised. Perhaps the idea there is they're thinking, well, Christ rose from the dead, we know that historically, we have eyewitnesses here, but no one else will. Well, if, Christ has, has, if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died. He's the first to rise from the dead, and all will follow in his train. All will be raised from the dead. Paul goes on to explain that God has a master plan by which he is systematically working to defeat death through the ministry of Jesus Christ. The first installment is verse 23, each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then... A long time later, when he returns, when he comes, those who belong to him will be resurrected from the dead. Finally, after a thousand-year reign, all people will be resurrected. Death itself will be destroyed, and Christ's victory will be complete, verse 24. The end will come then when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father to the Father, to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet. 
Now at verse 35, Paul stresses that we should not look at the coming resurrection as a mere resuscitation of our present bodies. Rather, as a dead seed grows into a plant, so our corpses will be raised into a transformed nature. Verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now at verse 50, Paul rounds, rounds the turn onto this final stretch of this classic development of the resurrection, and he stresses further the change that will come about. It is declared here at verses 50 through 53. Declaration, our bodies will be changed. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I think Paul is making one proposition here in two parallel phrases. He declares that our bodies, which are destined for decay and death are not fit for the glorious life of heaven. Our degenerating creaturely bodies are made of flesh and blood. They are inherently perishable, or the Greek word could be translated corrupt. And they are thus not fitted for life in the eternal dimension with Christ. Not fitted for this Christ who disappeared and reappeared, who ate and could be touched, and who could ascend into heaven. They're not fit for that much less than that little boy's legs would be fit to race against Olympic runners. We're not fit for that. Now, no one in the Corinthian church had any arguments with Paul on this point. We do live in a corruptible body. The point is, what then? Are we destined to a bodiless consciousness throughout eternity? Are we destined to kind of just visit people as a ghost? Are we destined, maybe on the other hand, for annihilation? Once those eyelids fall in death, it's over. Everything's done. Just goes blank. No, says Paul, there is where you do not understand the theology of Jesus Christ and his work. The what then, let's look at it from God's perspective. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. Now I've got to stop there for a moment. Because mystery, we think of mystery as a truth that has a blanket over it. We know there's something under there. Somebody done it, and we know it's somebody in this room. That kind of thing. We know there's something under there. But we don't know what's under the blanket. The Bible uses the word mystery in a very different way. We don't know there's anything under the blanket. We don't know there is any blanket. In fact, the truth is concealed in the mind of God. But a mystery is something actually God takes the blanket off. And he says, there's been something concealed in my mind from eternity past that I am now going to reveal to you as my people because it's time to know it. This mystery, verse 51, it's time now to know we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We need to sit up and hear that because this is a mystery God has revealed to us. Not every believer in earth's history will die before Christ returns. That's what he's saying. He said that in verse 23. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. That was understood there. Now he fleshes that out here in verse 51. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Every believer, dead or alive at the return of Christ, will be changed. Verse 52, how's that going to happen? In a flash, or we use the phrase, in a split second. 
In the twinkling of an eye, we use the term at a blink of an eye. In other words, immediately. And when is that going to happen, this change? Verse 52, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Trumpets were commonly used in that day to announce the arrival of an important person. This last trumpet signals the return of Christ and the beginning of the end as Christ finalizes his victory over death and every other enemy and turns the kingdom over to God, verses 26 through 28. We have a little bit of this in our own protocol in the military, don't we? It's early morning. Soldiers are asleep and a man stands before the soldiers' tents. He puts a trumpet to his lips and plays reveille. Trumpet sounds and the dead awake. It's a picture the prophecy of what will come at the end. The simple practice serves, in a sense, as a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the dead. There's a trumpet one day that will sound, and those who are asleep, and I mean really asleep, will rise from the dead. Imperishable. Once again, Paul drives home this point. What does he say at verse 52? We will be changed. Whether living on that great day or dead, our bodies will be physically transformed. And this is absolutely essential, verse 53. For, this is the necessity of it all, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. This is the positive side of verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but the perishable must put on imperishability. The corrupt must put on incorruption, the mortal, immortality. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, will reverse the domino effect of death to which we are subject as children of the first Adam. So here is his declaration. We will be changed. We will be transformed. We will be given new bodies, our bodies, resurrected. Very different, changed, but as a seed that comes to life is different. Now, he deals with the implications, beginning at verse 54. The implications ultimately is that death is a defeated foe. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory when resurrection comes. This is a quotation from Isaiah 25 and verse 8. In other words, death has been finally and forever defeated. I'd like you to notice there in that phrase at the end of verse 54, what does it say? Death has been swallowed up in victory. At that point, it will all be over. And in a sense, it already is. This is the final time. There's a time, however, right now when death is essentially defeated. Death has been swallowed up in victory, and so Paul stands back and takes on this great taunt and says, verse 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, let's read that in the right way. I, we tend, particularly in our setting, to read that in psychological terms. Where, O death, is your sting? Well, we're at the funeral of a loved one, and there's a lot of sting. 
That's not the way that Paul means that here. Not, he's not saying that death is no longer has any effect on us psychologically or emotionally. The idea is that the scorpion of death has lost its stinger. Death is still there, but the sting, the source of death in death, is, has been pulled. When Jesus slipped the clutches of death three days after his crucifixion, death had been rendered toothless. A toothless enemy. Reminds me of the dog that terrorized our neighborhood where I grew up. Probably told you about this dog before. It had a profound impact on me (laughs) for fear. Pound for pound, he was the meanest, nastiest, orneriest dog I've ever met in my life to this day. I think somewhere in the breeding process, the wires got mixed up, if you know what I mean. This was a dog born with issues. And... (laughs) He seemed to think that everybody was a mass murderer and he had been put on earth to destroy them and take them out. I'd walk by that house, I remember that, and I'd just shake with fear, hoping that dog wouldn't see me. It didn't matter that his name was Snoopy. (laughs) And it didn't matter that he was no more than nine inches tall. Just one of those dosh hounds. A little terrorist packaged like a wiener. (laughs) But at the drop of a hat, that dog would attack your ankles with a piercing bark that would scare anybody, just make your blood go cold. Then one day we learned the truth. Snoopy had no teeth. (laughs) Did that ever change my perspective? He's not a big enough dog to bowl you over. He's just a little dog that could bite your ankles. But he had no teeth. The news got around the neighborhood. And as I grew older, of course, the fear dissipated. I think to some degree that's a picture of death. Death is a ferocious dog. Or in the picture that Paul may be thinking of here, a scorpion. But the sting is gone. The dog is is toothless. And let's admit it, at times that dog of death can still intimidate us with its bark. But as we mature in Christ and as we come to terms with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we come to realize more and more there is nothing to fear. It's toothless. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In Jesus Christ, sheltered in His resurrection power, we can all take up that taunt. There's nothing now to fear. And as we mature in our relationship, we walk forward in that victory. The battle is not over, certainly. The dog still lives, but it's been rendered toothless. The war has been won on Easter Sunday morning. The conquest Jesus will complete when he returns to finish this assault on death. Death has already lost its sting. The only thing left is for Jesus to put his heel on the scorpion and crush it to death forever. That's what we anticipate. And we gather on the first day of the week, every week, to celebrate that victory and to anticipate this final consummation. We gather here as the redeemed from out of the world. And as we gather on the Lord's day, we are saying in a sense by our own presence and by our participation here that I am part of that great company in heaven that will rejoice in the resurrection throughout all eternity. Some days we even come with weary bodies, 
decaying bodies, the older among us, but we look forward to that great resurrection when our bodies will be changed. And we come here and we sing. Our songs are no professionally polished offerings, but they are songs that we sing from our heart as we anticipate a day when we will sing like we've never thought of before, with voices that are cleared up of all the mess inside and all of the weaknesses, and we will sing with glorified bodies to the glory of Christ throughout all eternity. And we gather on the Lord's Day to study God's Word so that it gives us a window and a picture of that coming glory when we will be in His presence. And we gather to serve God's people as we will throughout all eternity with joy and delivered from pain and disease and heartache and disappointment and sin. As Paul's celebratory cry echoes with hope in our ears, how feeble the words of this world's lights. I think of the musings of Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, who wrote this. Think of Paul's words in verse 55. As Sigmund Freud says this, And finally there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. Let me declare to you on the authority of Scripture and on the authority of my own heart experience, Sigmund Freud never knew Jesus Christ. His philosophy was empty of resurrection hope. You can't say that if you know Christ. But for those united to Christ, death holds no fear and life is filled with hope. In fact, for the one who is in Christ, death is simply a great adventure and the trials of life a rite of passage. Having said this, Paul cannot keep himself away. He has landed in verse 55 on the ultimate climax of victory over death, but he can't help himself. He's got to take this on to a theological route here and to finish up the thought the fuller theological realities that attach to this idea that death is dead, ultimately, is found in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What does he mean by that? The sting of death is sin. Again, I think if we understand him rightly, he's saying, if I could put it this way, the stinger in the scorpion of death is sin. If there was no sin, there would be no death. Remember what God told Adam on the day that he ate of the forbidden fruit, he would surely die. Without sin, there would be no death. But now that death is defeated, it means that sin is defeated. There would be no death if there was no sin, but sin, in a matter of speaking, is the stinger removed from the scorpion. And what motivates sin? What motivates sin? Is, is it not the law in Paul's theology in particular? Romans chapter 7, he says, The sting of death is sin. So if death is taken care of, sin has been taken care of in some respect. And the power of sin is the law. When God says no, what do we naturally do? Yes. When he says yes, we naturally respond no. God says to think of the negative only here. He says, do not lie. Do not lust. Do not disobey your parents. Do not love money. Do not fear. And his commands create a thirst in us to disobey. 
And so we sin. We break God's laws or we grow proud in keeping them. The law of God is pure and good, Romans 7, 7 and following. But it provokes sin in us. And so the law is a light shining upon the fact that we are sinners. And it is in that sense then the power of sin. When God says no, we disobey. When he says yes, we disobey. Death is the penalty of sin. And sin is exposed by the law of God. This is what Paul means when he says the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But, verse 57, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over what? Victory over death, which results from sin, which is turned on by the law of God. All of this has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. Death is more than a physical phenomenon. Death is punishment for sin, and we all die. Now, don't take that to mean that death is a specific punishment for sin. In other words, somebody that dies an excruciatingly painful death, or someone who uh, dies at a, what we call an early age, that they're somehow worse sinners than the person who dies in their sleep of old age. That's not the point. The point is we all die. However the circumstances play out, we die, and we die because we are sinners. Death is the penalty of sin. But Jesus defeated death. He defeated the penalty of death, and therefore it follows that he won the forgiveness of sin. Jesus died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over death and sin and hell, and so through faith in Jesus Christ and his work, you can receive the forgiveness of all of your sins and conquer death through Christ's victory. To those who have entered that victory, Paul concludes with these challenging words, verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. He speaks there of the brotherhood, of the family of God. You in the family of God, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Stand firm in what? Not be moved by what? Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Remember what he said there? 15, 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you notice it, hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Now back to verse 58. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. It is a call to enduring stability, holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the meaning and the historical reality of his death and resurrection. And then he calls us secondly here to energetic labor, verse 58. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If I could paraphrase this reflecting the Greek text, this reads something like, it could read something like this. With disciplined consistency, keep on pouring yourself out in the exhausting labor of the Lord's work. Why? Because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Serving the God who has defeated death is not an empty pursuit. It is the only life that makes any sense. To fight for God's cause is to fight on the winning side. He has defeated the ultimate enemy, and we fight for him as we serve him. 
It may well be that all of us here in this auditorium today will die. Unless Christ comes in our lifetime, we will. Our bodies are corruptible, they are mortal, we will have to walk through the icy door of death. But there is life on the other side. On the back side of that door is a warm and glorious land, an eternal dimension in God's presence. For with our resurrected bodies, we will be uniquely fitted with a body like Jesus' body. If you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have been born again in the Spirit through faith, death has no sting. Rejoice in it. Sin has been defeated. Live in it. Live that way. Live in that victory. And you can live in the hope of this coming glory. In fact, we can say that to die is gain. You may be here today, however, and you have not placed your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have not come to a place where you have met Him personally. You're not going to see Him literally, but you have not come to a place where you, something has happened in your heart and in your soul where you know that you know Christ. You too will receive a resurrection body but you will go into eternity with every sin you have ever committed loaded on your back. And weighed down with that load, you will enter a Christless eternity separated from God, and your life on earth will have proven absolutely worthless. You're not going to go before God in this resurrected body and stand there and tell Him that you outran Him by your good deeds. You're going to have to come in a very different way. You're going to have to come in abject poverty before Him. And you're going to have to do that now, in this life. And come before God and admit.